The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 240 for the week of November 28th, 2010. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, as you couldn't tell if you've forgotten the past two weeks, because I'm back. And if you're looking for Gene McCulka, he's right here. Welcome, Gene. Hey, sorry. Nice to have you back there, my friend. Great to be back as well. And uh, also with us still is Mark Ratterman. Hey, Mark. Yes, sir. I'm outstanding in my field, and good to be here. Glad to have you with us. I'm actually not in my usual field. I'm out here in Arizona, so I'm taking the show on the road a little bit. Yeah, how's how, how the skies out there, sir? Seriously, I'm, I'm I'm insanely jealous. Oh my gosh, they're so clear. I mean, there's no streetlights here, which is which is great for astronomy, but terrible for driving. I kind of wish I was out there with my uh, my Celestron Eight there and. Just going ahead and taking a look at uh, looking at the sky there. God, I'm, I'm I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. Oh, it's so nice. I mean, you can see so many different constellations uh, that you normally don't get to see in Smogland back by us in Jersey. It's Smogland. <laughs> That's what it is. I'm sorry. Anyway, let's get back to a clear show, and uh, we'll clear the smog away, and we'll get on to our first story. And that is STS-133, the final flight of the Space Shuttle Discovery. There's some more news about it that uh, we didn't report last week that has just occurred, and uh, it's not good news, right, Gene? Yeah, it looks like we've got a new uh, new uh, target flight date here uh, on December 17th, and I'm a little bit on the pessimistic side about that one, uh, given what's been going on. Uh, again, it looks like... Uh, uh, they're they're still trying to analyze the uh, the infamous stringer problem that's been plaguing uh, tank number 137 since uh, uh, it was uh, discovered back on November 5th. Um, that repair, I believe, Mark helped me out here, was completed prior to Thanksgiving. Yes, I think they were uh, they finished their foam work. Uh, I don't recall if it was the Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. That sounds familiar, but they finished their foam repair work. The stringers were fixed prior to that, and uh, this gave the the NASA folk and contractors the opportunity for some time off they haven't had in weeks and weeks. And uh, you know, you know, you think of Thanksgiving and time off in the U.S., and it's a, a four-day weekend in some cases longer. And um, but they're getting Thursday off. There's people going back to work the uh, the day after Thanksgiving, Friday. And more people coming back up on Saturday and Sunday back into the back into the workflow. So, uh, you know, God bless them. They need they need time off. You need some downtime. You can't you can't focus on rocket science 
seven days a week for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad they did stop when they did, and looking forward to some results that we'll probably hear about in the next week or so as to what they think the causes of all this are. Indeed. And by the way, just a quick note for those of you that are not sure, we're talking about the stringers are the little cracks that they've been finding on the external tank, which they first found on the November 5th launch attempt. Since then, they found multiple of them, at least four. And uh, those are the tiny cracks underneath the foam on the tank that we've been discussing. Just so those of you that are unsure of what we're discussing know what we're talking about. And that brings up the question of if this has happened to one tank, what happened? Was there a major failure? And at the same time, there's still two more tanks. Are those also played with the same stringers? Well, funny you should ask. Um, one, first, 137 and 138 are the uh, new lightweight external tanks. 122 is the older uh, standard external tank. Uh, funny you should ask that question because it was asked during the uh, the press conference. Uh, they did do an analysis of tank number 138 and tank number 122, and they could not find anything wrong with that. So at least they have two controls, at least, to go ahead and do any type of further troubleshooting. They can go ahead and take a look at those tanks and do whatever you know analysis they need to need to do from you know from a from an X-ray standpoint or anything like that. So uh, you know, again, that that might help help. Uh, help in troubleshooting. The problem is, though, uh, the, the the troubling thing that at least troubled uh, John Shannon a little bit during the uh, um, the press conference was that somewhere along the line, their process is broken down. You know, the, this thing was allowed to go out to the pad in this, this condition, and somewhere along the lines, the QA, QC process kind of sort of fell apart, and they need to understand where that process break breakdown how by the way gene what is qaqc quality control you know that type of thing uh quality assurance um they need to figure out where their 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 quality assurance processes broke down and that's something else that is also in play in all this so until we we understand fully what happened to uh these these uh you know these what caused these cracks and and all this and what caused uh all this stuff to sort of pop off uh during cryofilling uh that's that's one thing we've got to take a look at but also where in the pro where did the process fail and that's also something that that's 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 key to this whole thing another issue that you're dealing with is the fact that 122 was even observed with different standards because that was pre-katrina and that tank was actually damaged during Hurricane Tr- Katrina back in 2005 because the Michoud plant is actually located down in Louisiana. And it's not only heavier, but it's older. And you don't know if the damage from Katrina did more than we can actually see. So that's also going to be interesting if, number one, that was affected, and number two, if they still use it. Yeah, they'll still use it, guarantee. You know, they they will still use that. Because again, they they've gone through um, their analysis with that thing, I believe, and they've they've done their X-ray analysis, and uh, uh, they they came up uh, with nothing. Uh, so, you know, well, again, I, that 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 is, I believe, tank number one twenty two is already passed with flying colors. One thirty eight is also passed with flying colors. Um, there is a scenario that may create a rollback. I understand. If they have to go ahead and study, um, and I forget which side um, 
of the tank that we'll need, need to take a look at with the X-ray equipment. I believe it's the the side where where the orbiter is actually attached, which I believe is the uh, Z plus side. Thank you. Um, if if they need to examine that for any for any reason whatsoever, um, it would mean a rollback and detach the orbiter from the tank. Uh, there was a question too uh, during the press conference whether whether or not uh, they were going to swap tanks, and I said, well, it's, it's on the table if they have to, but they just at this point they they, they don't see it happening. The interesting thing though is the the mark the, the repairs that they 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 made out on on 39A recently were repairs that they would have done over at Mashud had they detected this problem over there, and they they performed that 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 repair. Um, for the first time um, on the launch pad. So I thought that was kind of impressive. But again, they need to understand where the process broke down, where this quality control process broke down. Why was the, the tank allowed to go on to the pad in this configuration? And, you know, that, that can, knowing a little bit about process studies and so on, um, yeah, that's going to be a troublesome deal. That's why I'm sort of thinking, I, I'm not sure that, that December 17th is doable. All right, well, while they're x-raying the tank, we'll keep x-raying their examinations of the tank, and we'll keep you up to date as we know more. Continuing along to our next story is that the crew of Expedition 25 safely landed in the high deserts of Kazakhstan. And the crew, which consisted of Commander Doug Wheelock, who on Twitter is Astro underscore Wheels, as well as Flight Engineer Shannon Walker and Fyodor Yurchakin, who, as you can guess, is from the Russian Space Administration, successfully landed and completed their mission. Anything on Expedition 25? I know a bunch of folks are going to miss uh, uh, Astro Will's photographs, and uh, some of the things he was bringing back on Twitter were uh, quite amazing. There was one shot, I remember, of an aurora, and his commentary was just, wow. So it's, it's stuff like that that... Uh, uh, I think folks are going to miss. Uh, one thing, uh, I was looking at the uh, the landing photographs, and uh, I, I tweeted the, the, the landing photograph out when, when I saw it, and somebody went, looked at that and said, that's got to hurt. Uh, <laughs> um, it it, it kind of sort of does, if I understand this correctly. Um, I, I forget which uh, uh, astronaut had mentioned this, because it was mentioned at the... Um, I, I kind of heard this from some of the chatter from the last uh, tweet up at, uh, at in, in Houston. Um, one of the one of the guest speakers was a was was an astronaut that both went through uh, shuttle reentry and went through Soyuz reentry, and he kind of likened a Soyuz reentry as being in a car wreck when you hit. It was it, it's really that 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 hard. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of agree with, with that one person. It's, it's an ouch when you hit. Yeah, I was talking actually once to um, to T.J. Kramer, who also was aboard the International Space Station for a short stay. And he actually mentioned that, you know, it's just like hitting into the ground at 40, 50 miles an hour after experiencing multiple times your own weight pushing down on you, which to me means ouch. Yeah, definitely. But uh, the they, uh, the the folks over there got a lot accomplished. They uh, repaired the um, uh, that uh, pesky pump over the over the uh, the summer, uh, and uh, Fyodor Yurchikin just uh, completed uh, 
prior to coming home, completed a, a, a good, successful five-hour EVA. So, um, you know, they, the, the crew has got a lot to, uh, to hold their head up high for Expedition 25 and uh, wish uh, Expedition 26 well. Continuing along to our next topic, we were mentioning that Doug Wheelock on Twitter is Astro underscore Wheels. Well, it turns out that NASA is number one in the index of effectiveness of social media and web use. Basically means get out your foam fingers, people, because NASA's number one in social media, even beating out the White House. Pretty impressive, huh? Yeah, I just wanted to... to give a, a huge shout out to everybody that uh, I know of any way that's involved in this. There, there are two folks that uh, have uh, put together some really amazing things on, on, on Twitter as, as a result of all this. I'm, I'm uh, thinking of uh, first Beth Beck, who's uh, uh, basically the, the brainchild behind NASA Buzzroom, um, buzzroom.nasa.gov. Uh, it goes ahead and takes a look and, and you're trying to figure out what's going on on Twitter and what's what's being said about NASA on Twitter. That's the place to go ahead and take a look. It'll it'll take take the, the NASA hashtag or any mention of NASA and, and kind of post it up on there, um, which is kind of neat. Um, and uh, forgive me if I you know I always botch your last name, Stephanie. I am so sorry, uh, Stephanie Steinholtz. Uh, please, somebody, anybody help? Stephanie Sherholtz. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Um, she has organized uh, at least a handful of uh, NASA tweet-up events and has done, you know, a, uh, just a, a, an exemplary job at, at getting that done. I'm sure she had some significant challenges with the last one, which was the STS-133 launch tweet-up, the launch which really didn't happen uh, as a result of all this, and that must have been everybody's kind of sort of worst nightmare, but uh, she made uh, a, a very good batch of lemonade out of, out of the lemons that, uh, out of the technological lemons that uh, that were handed to her, and uh, I think still people walked away amazed and, and, and awed by, uh, by the event. So uh, hats off to everybody that has anything to do with social media over at NASA. I think you guys should be, uh, look at this news and be proud. Yeah, just a few uh, a few tidbits to you know kind of help measure how how great a job they're doing. Uh, there's a ranking that that shows your digital IQ, and there are uh, about six or so levels. There's feeble, which is a digital IQ of under 70. Challenged is digital IQ of 70 to 90. Average is 90 to 110. Gifted is 110 to 140. Genius is a digital IQ greater than 140. And in that class is NASA, the White House, the organization PETA, the U.S. Army, and DNC. And uh, NASA, like you said, Sawyer, they were uh, above the White House by a, by a big margin. And that's the thing that's surprising because the White House got a lot of press when Obama took office with things that they were doing to involve the public. But when you look at this... Uh, this in-depth report and read about it, NASA has over, I believe the number I saw was over 6 million uniques on their websites, and uh, they're doing a great thing. And refer to, to this report if you want to do some in-depth reading. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Mark DNC of the Democratic National Committee. Okay, thanks. 
Is that it? Okay, I just wanted I, I just I wanted to make sure that, that that was what we were talking about. All right, and again, that'll be linked as the L2 Think Tank, which is what they actually call it. Speaking of think, NASA a few weeks ago assigned Leland Melvin, former astronaut, a brand new position. Leland Melvin is now the Associative Administrator of NASA's Education Office. And Gene and I, as well as a couple of other people from the media, had a chance to actually speak with him. Yeah, this was uh, something, unfortunately, we've been we've been kind of sitting on for a little while. And uh, uh, this was also due to the fact uh, you know, that the uh, situation with STS-133 was so fluid. But um, it was... Uh, it, it was quite a, an hour that we had uh, with, uh, you know, you and I, Sawyer, with, uh, with uh, Mr. Leland Melvin. First off, if you've ever, if you ever have the good fortune to meet him, he's, he's quite a, uh, quite an interesting, uh, interesting and charismatic character to, to just sit there and talk to. I mean, you can, you know, pick his brain for hours and, and not get bored at all. Um, just a, a very, very engaging person. And I thought that uh, having him get the job as uh you know, associate administrator for education uh, was I mean, it was a masterful pick, uh, whoever made it, uh, and uh, I think we're we're going to be seeing some very big things for uh, for uh, the future uh, for education. So it'll be very interesting to see what uh, Mr. Melvin has in, has in mind. And he was he really just great and eloquent. I mean, from the second he started talking, I was I was engaged. I was sitting there, you know, with the notepad, and I was I stopped writing notes. I'm like. Geez, this guy is good. And I think he's really got some great plans for the future. I mean, if we even just listen to his opening, you'll hear it. Yeah. Um, why, don't we, why don't we run that right now? How convenient. You got it. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm, I'm very excited to be here in this new role as the uh, Associate Administrator for Education. I have a lot of uh, education roots in me through my parents. Both my parents were middle school teachers in Lynchburg, Virginia, and even to this day, when I go back to Lynchburg, people seek me out to tell me the impact that my parents had on their lives. And they do this with their spouse and children in tow. So they not only affected this one individual, they affected a community. And with that, with those roots and, and those, um, that upbringing, I am just honored and have applied to be part of this education organization to help lead it, to help get kids excited, to get teachers motivated to help them help change the world. And this appointment became active last week, so I had my first day on the job meeting with uh, the senior staff down at Master Langley Research Center, and we all charged to work together to ensure that our nation has, through NASA's missions, subject matter experts, and its great branding, that we add a significant um, influence into changing the equation on STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And a lot of the things that have come out of the President's Educate to Innovate campaign have, have been this, uh, this PCAS report, President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. The two overarching elements out of that talk about we need to prepare students and teachers, but a large part of it is inspiration. And that's one of the things that NASA can truly do with its compelling missions, its compelling scientists and engineers to help inspire that next generation of explorers. And back in 2003, I was a member of the Educator Astronaut Program where we canvassed the country to get, to get students to nominate their teachers to become astronauts. 
And that program came to fruition when Dottie Metcalf Lindenberger, she was a middle school teacher who actually worked the robotic arm in space. Her other two colleagues, Joe Acaba and Ricky Arnold, actually did spacewalks. So it lets you know that, you know, teachers, just like anyone else, can rise and walk and, and, and be motivated from a space classroom. So that was a, a big success that I was really proud of being a part of. And the STEM messages we need to get out to the nation to make our nation a not only a, a technological and innovative um, um, nation, but we have these new thinkers that think about exploration and the future of, of NASA and just our country in general. So those are some of the things that I'm looking forward to working with. At the next launch on November 1st, we're having what we're calling an innovation summit being led by education where we invite a lot of the stakeholders from around the country to come and see how we can partner together to help change this uh, STEM needle. Another thing that we're doing is going to have a major education partnership announcement. So I can't give you all the details now, but uh, down at the launch, we're going to have this uh, really exciting partnership announcement that's going to be made. And we're coming off the tail end of the Summer of Innovation. It was a, a program that allowed kids to work uh, experientially over the summer when, when they usually have the summer slide. And so we want to make sure that we're a force in getting them thinking about science and engineering and technology over the summer months so when they come back to school in the fall, they'll be ready to start up and, and, uh, and do very well in classes. And we're going to also continue that in 2011. So we're looking at these partnerships of Summer of Innovation Success, working together to help our kids and our teachers be the best in the nation. It's interesting, too, that he goes ahead and, and credits his parents, who were both instructors, with, for his uh, love of education and, and uh, how uh, he feels his parents have, have kind of sort of touched his life and, and helped him and propel forward. So that was kind of, uh, kind of a neat thing to get out of that. Yeah, I found that actually pretty neat. And uh, a little bit later on, he went on to discuss, you know, how his parents helped him a little bit. But, you know, there were a few little programs that helped him, but he really took the initiative and he, he really turned it into uh, into something you wouldn't expect from originally a football player into now an astronaut. Yeah, I mean, it, I just still think it's it's kind of interesting, too, that, that he has that tie into the NFL which uh, I think will be kind of unique because I'm sure because of that, uh, his experience there, he'll be able to get some star power from the NFL to sort of help him out in a lot of these educational outreach uh, endeavors that he that they've got planned. So I believe he mentioned one plan that uh, uh, he was talking with Donovan McNabb about, about teaching kids the physics of football, how to, you know, how, you know, mathematics and physics go ahead and, uh, play a part in throwing the right pass and so on, or being that wide receiver that has to go ahead and catch that that, that bomb that gets thrown out there. Um, you know, the, the physics behind that and knowing that will go ahead and help you be a better ball player. So, you know, that there there's you know, right there a, a tie-in. So I think that's what he's really looking for. He's trying to hit on what what appeals to what it really really appeals to kids. Actually, he ended up talking a little bit about that because of a little conversation that I just tried to start with them. Yeah, why don't we go ahead and run that? Uh, there was a little tie-in, I believe, with football and uh, with technology and so on. Somebody had mentioned his uh, uh, football jersey is in the uh, is over at the uh, Football Hall of Fame. So why don't we go ahead and run that clip? Sorry. I wonder what handsome gentleman mentioned that. 
<laughs> Thanks. Uh, first, I have to say I was actually just at the uh, Football Hall of Fame, and I did happen to see uh, the football <laughs> that you brought up with you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was uh, I was in a meeting the other day, and a friend of mine, Christian McBride, who's a jazz bassist, he texted me from the Hall of Fame and said, "Hey, man, did you know your jersey's in the Hall of Fame?" And I said yes, and I told him to take a picture with the jersey so that I could tweet it out later. So in my meeting, I received a picture of this great jazz bassist that I sent out to the rest of the Twitter Twitterverse, and I was just thinking of the technology to do that. You know, cell phones, iPhones, all these things make it so easy to have this instant interaction, this instant way of communicating. And, and some of the things that we can do with this technology is to actually have kids being, you know, they, most of them have cell phones, a lot of them have smartphones, try to build apps that allow them to work together. And that's something else we're looking at doing with a couple of other companies to, if I go give a presentation, the kids can actually help me create something through the Wi-Fi network in that, in that school and by working together in a collaborative way. And once you get them exposed to working together, then you can start breaking down the different components of the phone. There's you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, material science, all these different pieces that make up this, this phone. And even if you go into the music side, you know, think about digital signal processing and all these other things that are required with Fourier transforms and math that allow them to have these MP3 files and these you know, different things in their phone. So, um, that, so when I thought about that jersey in the Hall of Fame, I thought about how quickly I had a picture of it with my friend that I flew his music in space. So it kind of comes full circle from space to music. to, And uh, and I'd worked with Quincy Jones before. I took some of his music to space. And Quincy said that, you know, music and math are the only true two absolutes that use both the right and the left side of the brain. And if we can get kids to start thinking about the things they love, how science, technology, and math are embedded in it, and the better that they are at doing, you know, this things like physics, because we had uh, Donovan McNabb had a football camp in Philadelphia for about 400 kids, and we went there with a, an engineer and taught the physics of football to the kids in the camp. So we told them, if you know, the better you know physics, like the center of gravity, rotational velocity, all these things, the better, better ball player you'll be, and then maybe you'll get a scholarship to college, to be a scientist and a ball player, and maybe even find space one day. <laughs> I mean, I just started that conversation just out of out of a little joke because I was just at the Hall of Fame and happened to see it, and I figured, you know, I'd mention it to him, get a little laugh out of it. But I mean, to turn it from that into talking about how, you know, he was just at a table and someone instantly took a picture of it and sent it to him, just to make that tie-in right there, I was surprised and impressed. Yeah, he, you know, again, he, he's trying to tie in, um, you know, technology and uh, and football and and the reason why, you know, and space and the reason why technology is so important. The reason why you've got to learn math and science and so on is to go ahead and have these these interesting little little tools like Twitter and and your cell phone and the internet and all that. So without a, you know, without having a good understanding of mathematics and, and, and scientific pursuits, all that stuff wouldn't happen. Um, speaking of which, before we did the interview that, that week, I had, uh, asked a couple of folks, um, th through Twitter, uh, that I knew were, were teachers, 
to if they had a question for uh, for uh, Mr. Melvin to go ahead and, and let me know about that. And um, I got two, uh, both from from instructors. Uh, one uh, from Janelle Wilson, who uh, had the same type of thought I did, believe it or not, with my question. And uh, her question was about trying to instill in kids to try to think critically and think outside the box. And how do we go ahead and, and how, how, how would NASA go ahead and help do that? And uh, I, I thought the way she worded her question was a little bit more elegantly than, than I would have. So I used her, um, I used her, uh, her question verbatim when I asked uh, Leland Melvin about it. So sorry, why don't we go ahead and run that and, uh, and uh, Mr. Melvin's response to that. Happily. Good afternoon, Leland. First, congratulations on the new position. Uh, couldn't think of a better person for the job. Oh, thank you, Gene. Um, I have a question from one of our listeners, uh, Janelle Wilson of the uh, Lanier Mills School in Sugar Hill, Georgia, uh, and it was also a question of mine as well. In your estimation, how can teachers continue to inspire creativity and inquiry in our students in order to prepare them for scientific careers at NASA that require critical, outside-the-box thinking when we're when teachers seem to be continuously forced to teach within the confines of a very, you know, test-centric system. Yeah, that's that's a very tough problem because you only have so much time in the day to teach to the test and to get the things done for the test. One of the things we're doing with the education design team is to try to look at ways that we can take the NASA content, the mission-related NASA content, and if we can get that package in a way that they can use that will then help them in their curriculum that will, you know, so if they're teaching to the test, maybe they can use this NASA curriculum. Maybe we can also um, have subject matter experts, whether or not they're in the classroom or come in via Skype, to help with the preparedness of the teachers and to show our compelling missions and our exciting um, technology. So you can get the inspiration, I think, uh, combined with help from others. And it's not just NASA, it's going to take you know, the other national laboratories. It's going to take programs like Change the Equation, which is 100 skills around the country to help this STEM effort. Um, it's going to take the White House. It's going to take all of us as a team. So I think it's going to be a, a, an effort to be strategic about how we get this content into the, into the classrooms. But it's, that's a really tough one when you're, when you're spending, you know, 90% of your time trying to get test scores up with the, uh, with the students. Indeed, it sounds like NASA is also thinking outside the box as well. Um, just to follow up to that, um, it, uh, she, she also asked it would be nice to know what NASA is exactly looking for in students that could help create future scientists. Well, I think, you know, you, you kind of hit it with uh, your first question is to truly be uh, innovative and creative. I mean, we, we're looking at solutions to trying to get solutions to problems that we don't even know yet. And so one down the road, when we're looking at going to Mars, how do we shorten the time to get to Mars? What are the propulsion systems going to be? What are the habitats going to be? Start letting kids think about design challenges for building these systems, and they may even come up with better solutions than the, than the engineers and scientists that we have right now. And so those are some of the areas that we'll look at to help strong STEM skills you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. If kids only have, you know, a math, a math strength or a science strength or, you know, an engineering strength, we need to have all of those combined. So maybe more, um, you know, interdisciplinary, uh, multidisciplinary 
learning uh, environments where they can see how all of these things fit together. I knew when I, I when I grew up, math was something that was kind of in its own little own little you know stovepipe, and it wasn't until much later that I saw the application of how math fit into these problems to solve you know to solve real world problems. And um, I think we need to really break it down and have all of the teachers working together, or maybe have projects where we work together to show how algebra helps you with this, how chemistry helps you with this, how, you know, all the other elements, um, engineering technology, help you solve a problem. And I think design challenges are a great way to do that. Yeah, again, um, he's, he's trying to go ahead and, and say, you know, kids, you know, we, we've got to go ahead and, and, and stop the, the rote learning, although that does have a place, and, and th make sure that we, we teach our kids how to think. Um, that, that's one critical critical thing that uh, I, I don't I, I think gets gets bypassed. I mean, there was a couple of instructors in my my career, uh, my collegiate career, and oddly enough, it was a it was a marketing instructor that was trying to go ahead and instill in his students, you know, learn how to think. Don't just read the book and say this is it. So that was one. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting there. Um, another gentleman um, that uh, gave me his question is a, a science instructor in uh, Brooklyn. He goes by Science Nate on Twitter. Um, he had a question with reference to uh, science itself and uh, as a subject, and how do we go ahead and, and make sure kids realize that this is this is a critical thing? Because he he had noticed that there was some different emphasis in about science in in, in his school system. And uh, you know, like it was placed above, it was placed below reading and mathematics, which I found kind of in interesting. And I, I say this when when I, when I ask the question, um, I kind of think that that somehow other science and math are linked, and they shouldn't be, be 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 separated. But apparently, this this particular school system has has other ideas. And he asked that, that question of Leela Melvin: How do we go ahead and make sure that that science doesn't get short shortchanged in uh, in, in the in, in the in the debate. So why don't we go ahead and, and run that question, sir? I was going to say, let's just listen to it. Great. And I have uh, another question from also a science educator in Brooklyn, New York, a gentleman by the name of Nate Tutts. He writes, um, we have heard on that uh, on paper government agencies, including NASA and the Department of Education, wish to prioritize science in schools. However, as he sees it from his standpoint as a science educator, especially in the New York City system, in actual practice, science falls behind in, in the priority behind reading and mathematics, which I personally find odd because math, is, math and science to me are linked. Um, what can NASA do to ensure that science is prioritized in schools, and what can teachers do to accomplish the same? Well, I think, as I said before, you know, using this uh, inspiration core to get that message out is is very important. We're going to also try to look at the policy side of things and being being part of the discussions with uh, you know state school districts. And, and so, as part of this education design team, we're trying to see where NASA can play a better role in helping communities better advance the STEM uh, the STEM pipeline. And again, I have to say my my thanks to uh, both. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if I'm able to to go ahead and use the gentleman's name, but uh, uh, to uh, Mr. Sutton, to Science Nate for giving me his question, and to Janelle Wilson for giving me her question. And uh, uh, again, thank you so much because I think you added uh, a lot to uh, 
to this. Um, Mark, you had a you had an interesting question. Um, you had written me um, an interesting question to ask uh, Mr. Melvin, and uh, it had to do with uh, uh, the belief that uh, um, that that NASA is is sort of the leader in in uh, pursuing a, a in pursuing STEM, and if if they are. Are other governments or are other government uh, agencies going ahead and, and and following suit, or is NASA basically the Pied Piper in this whole thing? Are they going off doing other endeavors, and um, are is NASA working with other government agencies? And uh, I, why don't we just go ahead and run that Sawyer and, and get uh, get Mr. Leland's response to that? Definitely. Leland, this is from uh, uh, my colleague Mark Ratterman. Um, do you consider NASA to be the leader in U.S. government agencies in, in education and outreach for STEM? And if so, can NASA's successes uh, be used as a template for other government agencies? Uh, are you guys reaching across the, uh, the aisle, so to speak, to other government agencies to try to help in this effort? Yes, I think we're one of the leaders because of our, our unique missions and the, and the numbers of scientists and engineers that we have working here. Um, there was a, this report that came out, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, who actually highlighted the Department of Education and the National Science Foundation to help pull all of the federal agencies together to have a STEM, have some STEM guidance and some STEM goals. And so that's, there's a, a National Science and Technology Council working group that I will be a part of that is trying to definitely see how everyone plays a part in, in, in doing these different um, you know, STEM-related activities. And so that everyone's not duplicating their efforts and we can more better leverage the funding that we have so that you know if, if we've got great content, maybe we replicate that content throughout the other organizations and then they maybe have another component that we don't have so that we all put our stones in and make the best stone suit possible for the nation. So again, it looks like that NASA is working with other government agencies uh, to go ahead and, and make sure that the, the STEM message gets out there. So you know, it's good to see that everybody's trying to at least get on the same page there. I have to admit, that was um, actually a great question too. Yeah, I thought so. A um, couple other things that were asked uh, with reference to uh, their pursuits was one, utilizing the International Space Station. Uh, for educational purposes for uh, for our students, and I think uh, Mr. Melvin went ahead and, and spoke to that. There was another question that, that had an interesting tie-in to that um, with the shuttle disappearing. So why don't we go ahead and get uh, uh, Leland Melvin's take on how to utilize the International Space Station as a, an educational tool for uh, for our young people. That's a good question. I You know, that that's one of the things that's going to be taking place very soon, and hopefully by next June, we'll get another shuttle flight in, but the uh, retirement of the shuttle is going to be, be really huge. But we do have more than 70 different student programs in the Teaching from Space, uh, in the teaching from space Arena from the Johnson Space Center that will have ISS downlinks done. And we're looking to partner with other people. We have things with, um, during the summer of renovation, we have these things called these robotic spheres that, people, that kids can actually program. So they have the spheres on the ground. We have the astronauts up on the space station with the spheres, and they can actually send the programming up and control how these spheres actually work in a microgravity environment. So we're going to better utilize the International Space Station as a, as a, as a tool to help get the education message down to the planet. 
So there are some very interesting ideas and very interesting things coming down the pike with uh, with reference to the ISS and uh, using it for educational purposes. Um, one other individual did ask too about um, using the uh, what do you do you know post shuttle you know with the shuttle retirement and everybody knows you know the the shuttle's been sort of the centerpiece of the U.S. space program for quite some time uh, and it is going away. Uh, what kind of hole that's going to leave in um, being visible and uh, be, have NASA being visible because it is such, you know, you see a shuttle on, on the pad and, and blasting off and, excuse me, kids get uh, kids get, get excited with that. So um, with the shuttle leaving, that leaves a visibility hole. How do you go ahead and handle that? And uh, Melvin said it was, a, it was a tough thing to deal with. So why don't we go ahead and get his take on that? Well, you know, that's that's a, a tough one. I mean, the shuttle is such a, a magnificent, uh, you know, vehicle for showing the nation how how you know, great we can do things with it when we put our minds together. Um, I know there are going to be follow-on launch vehicles. You know, we're going to have potentially commercial vehicles down the road. So I think we're going to have to parlay the education, um, you know, excitement through these other ventures once the shuttle retires. So you can see it's kind of you know it's kind of a touchy situation, but they're dealing with that the best they can, and I believe uh, the International Space Station uh, would basically become the centerpiece of that. But also, it looks like the commercial uh, vehicles we hope coming online that will hopefully uh, um, fill in that gap eventually, and uh, we'll get back up and flying again. Yeah, I was surprised um, that he actually even spoke about you know private. I was really surprised. Um, I actually wasn't, um, for the simple reason that, you know, like it or not, that it, it's going to happen. And, uh, it's part of now NASA's future, um, uh, at least, uh, at least, uh, for the, for the foreseeable future. So, um, you know, it, it, you have to get cozy with it and the, you know, it is what it is. So that, that's now going to have to be the... Uh, the main thrust and, and of, of the whole program and, and getting our crews back up to the International Space Station, you know, from the United States rather than from, from Russia. So, I say we should definitely thank Mr. Leela Melvin for taking his time out to uh, actually speak with the group that he did, including Gene and myself. And uh, again, thank you and best of luck to you in your new position. Indeed, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, the Education Office does to inspire uh, our future space explorers and uh, to also help uh, our nation's uh, teachers to go ahead and do the same. And a thank you, too, to the two individuals that uh, gave me a, a question to ask. I appreciate it. All right, and um, by the way, one interesting thing that uh, I mentioned before, I'm in Arizona, and... Uh, there, besides all, you know, the University of Phoenix and all the other observatories, there is one big natural landmark here that has something to do with space, and that is called the Meteor Crater. Yes, that's its official name for it. It doesn't have a specific name, but it's known as the Meteor Crater, which is considered to be the first discovered, you know, first proven and most well-preserved meteor crater in the world. And it's located in the middle of nowhere, Arizona. Its exact address is Happy Jack, Arizona. And I wish I was joking. 
However, when you get there, you go through the middle of nowhere, through these fields of yellow and green and mountains and not much else, much like you would see in a desert. Even a little bit of snow, but that's besides the point. So you get all the way up there through these tiny little roads, and you walk up, and they have a little video that they show you, and they have a cool, you know, little guided tour if you choose to take it. But if not, you go through a little museum, and then you step outside, and boy, is that one big hole. It's gorgeous. Just, it's 500 feet deep. You're talking a diameter of, sorry, a circumference of over two miles. It's amazing. And to see, you know, just how the people have actually gone and tried to look at it and how NASA actually used to train its Apollo astronauts there. In fact, what they actually have is they have a six-foot model astronaut and a five-foot-by-seven-foot American flag. And if you look very, very, very closely, right in the middle, you could see at the very bottom of the crater... You can see the astronaut in the flag. It's really tiny. I mean, to see it well, you have to actually use the little uh, telescopes there that they have to magnify it. And it's amazing how tiny it was, but they used it, and obviously it helped if the astronauts made it to the moon and back successfully. The interesting thing about Meteor Crater is I, I often think of uh, the late Gene Schumacher and, uh, and uh, Caroline Schumacher there. And... Um, their contributions to uh, to astronomy, but Gene Shoemaker specifically, because he also was been really really instrumental in, in training the astronauts for the lunar program. And uh, uh, Meteor Crater was was sort of the basis of a lot of that training. So um, again, it, it played a part in in getting Apollo together. But also, it, it's also a, a reminder that yeah, guys, impacts happen, and uh, we are still vulnerable. So, and in fact, Mrs. Shoemaker actually still has a large involvement, you know, with it. Like she's in some of the videos and some of the exhibits. So there's definitely the acknowledgement of them. And walking through it, it mentions, you know, how we're still vulnerable. It talked about Shoemaker leaving nine. And it also mentioned that impacts, you know, things burn up in the atmosphere. You get thousands of them a day. Ones that actually come in that are, you know, kind of medium to small size those come uh, about a couple thousand a year and uh the large ones that form meteor crater one every fifty thousand years as much as that seems like a long time in geology that's nothing yeah that, that's a blink of an, of an eye in uh in, uh, geolo- in geological time but it was really cool to see so if you ever get the chance to go out to Arizona, it's right near Winslow and Flagstaff. It's really just, you can see pictures of it, but it's not the same as actually going there. Okay, so were you actually standing in the corner in Winslow, Arizona, or what? Uh, I'm not joking. I turned on the radio of information there, and it said that on top of the meteor crater, you can also take a picture with a girl in a flatbed Ford on the corner of Winslow, (laughs) Arizona. Sorry, I had to ask. <laughs> they actually have a girl in a flatbed Ford in the corner of Winslow, Arizona. For those who don't know, it's the song called Take It Easy by the Eagles, and there's actually a line <laughs> about that. Mark, you had one more story to go ahead and share with us, correct? 
Yeah, let me uh, knock this out pretty quick. On November 22nd, NASA had a news release, and they talked about uh, NASA funding a nationwide high school student robotics program. And you like the idea of funding for something in the uh, in the high school uh, part of our educational system in the U.S., but this is $20 million over the next five years, and it's going to support a uh, program to inspire students' interest in Wow, what a coincidence. STEM, science, technology, mathematics, engineering, with a focus on robotic technology. Uh, they're going to have an annual competition, and this is going to take place on the regional basis and then in a national competition. And it's kind of like an athletic event for uh, elimination of these teams, but they're going to start out with a uh, a common parts kit that they're going to build a robot with, and one of the objectives of their competition is going to be to eliminate the other team's robots. Uh, they compete in an area the size of a basketball court. The robots must have offensive and defensive capabilities. This sounds like a lot of fun and something that's really going to energize the students. And, uh, you know, good shot, NASA. Way to go. Wow, robot wars. There's I was just going to say, it reminds me of that old TV show, Robot Wars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So just, just, just like tech, the old tech TV show. Wow, oh, that, that's, that's yeah. cool. Too cool. Great flashback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, robots work to accomplish a task and preventing their opponent from doing the same. It must be sturdy because of frequent contact between machines. So this is going to be interesting. They're talking about the uh, competitions. Uh, I believe we'll be cranking up in the uh, latter well, the beginning of next year during the latter part of spring, probably. We'll give you updates on it as we see it. Sounds like a plan. Can't wait. This is going to be a lot of fun to see. Agreed. And we have one last story, and it involves a blow-up doll flying an airplane. And, of course, we're mm -hmm. talking about the movie Airplane with actor Leslie Nielsen, who died today on this date. 2010 at the age of 84 in Tampa Bay, Florida. Now, most people know him for the movie Airplane and the Naked Gun series, but he also had some space connections, right? Indeed. Um, for those of you who are old movie buffs and so on, you might remember uh, a rather young Le Leslie Nielsen playing the commander of, uh, of uh, the spacecraft in uh, uh, the movie Forbidden Planet. He was Commander John J. Adams. And uh, so, um, as uh, Dr. Phil Plate uh, tweeted earlier uh, today, at Astra, uh, Leslie Nielsen, we're going to miss you. Um, again, you, you, he was a versatile actor, but uh, again, he had indeed had a, had a space tie-in. And uh, we, will, we will miss you, sir. Thank you again for everything, everything you contributed to the art of uh, acting. If uh, Mr. Nielsen is, is sort of remembered for, for Airplane, because it happened you know, later in his career, but... Uh, again, he, he should be remembered for a heck of a lot more. Again, he was an extraordinarily versatile actor, and I hope he is remembered for the for the role in Forbidden Planet. A fun little fact: he actually performed all of his own stunts. That's very true. That's very true. With that, this episode has come to a close. So I'd like to thank everybody that joined us tonight. Thank you, Gene McCulka. Yeah, I do all my own stunts here too. So. <laughs> Well, my stunt double's doing this ending right now, so thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. 
It's a pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for your contributions and uh, especially those recordings. That was some good material. Indeed. I'm glad we were able to get a hold of those. So once again, thank you for joining us. Glad we were able to get a hold of you at whatever point of day you're listening to us. And so as always, I must say, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. <laughs>